2: From Variety, celebrating 115 years covering the business of entertainment, this is the Awards Circuit Podcast. For her starring role in HBO Max's Made for Love, as a woman essentially locked inside for a decade by her tech mogul husband, Kristen Milioti turned to YouTube videos for research.
3: I wouldn't pretend to know what these women have been through, but I or what their actual reality is, but I, I watched a lot of interviews with women married to very successful, sometimes quite mercurial and mysterious, um, very famous men. And I really tried to um, infer that like in some interviews, they seem like they are unable to speak what is actually happening and that they have like bought into this fairy tale that has then turned into a complete nightmare, which we keep hearing time and time again. We heard it with Princess Diana. We heard it with Meghan Markle recently that that was something about Hazel's story that I really loved was that understand why this 20 something from this trailer park, like why would she agree to do this? And it's because she's offered like the ultimate quote unquote dream.
2: I'm Michael Schneider, and on this edition of the Variety Awards Circuit Podcast, we talk to Made for Love star Kristen Milioti about the unintentional timeliness of her series, coming a year after the unintentional timeliness of her film, Palm Springs. Later on, we chat with Catherine Zeta-Jones about her time on Fox's Prodigal Son, which we just learned this week would not be moving forward with a third season. But first, on the Variety Awards Circuit Roundtable, we dissect the huge Hollywood Foreign Press Association implosion and the news that 2022's Golden Globes will not be moving forward. It's all next on this edition of Variety's Awards Circuit Podcast. Stay close. Hey, everyone. I am... Variety Senior Awards TV Editor. That is all wrong. I completely got my title wrong. It doesn't matter. (laughs) I am Michael Schneider. Welcome to another edition of Awards Circuit Podcast. Joining me, as always, Jazz Tanke. Jazz...
4: Hello. I don't know my title anymore.
2: They change. Who knows? Danielle Terciano, you also have a long title I don't remember. So
1: Yeah, and we all do like eight more things than our titles suggest anyway. It's fine. Just, you know, no one needs to know what our titles are.
2: Exactly. But then looky who else we have in the clubhouse today. It is television star... Clayton Davis, TVs. Clayton Davis. I, pre- I prefer my title VP of
5: Janitorial Services. Thank you very much.
2: <laughs> that
5: is my title.
2: Yeah, they 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 made you clean up the the Dolby Theater after your uh, big big TV spot <laughs> yep. on ABC a couple weeks ago. It's like while you're here, here's a mop, Clayton. <laughs> Brian Cranston made a mess.
5: God, <laughs> I was so angry. Hi, guys. Missed you for two weeks. And Danielle, I missed you. I was going say, we never my done this before. <laughs> my my no, whole this life. Is,
1: this is a first. Usually, like, we're, we're, pat, what is that? Ships in the night? We just pass.
2: Yep. That's right. Look at us. Best of friends. Mm-hmm. Can't live without each other. Mm-hmm. Virtual fist bump. Well, we were going to have Clayton on to talk Emmy predictions, and we'll get to that. But, gang, this was quite a week. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing happened.
4: <laughs> so what quiet.
1: happened? It's only Tuesday.
2: Quite a well. It's it's Thursday, jazz, according to the magic of <laughs> podcast drops. Right, right. But <laughs> I was going to say that the
1: sca- really scary thing is like we're we are recording this a little earlier than it publishes what might happen in the interim like that's given how crazy the start of this week was i worry about what's yeah, to come
2: that's true you, by the time you listen to this there may be no hfpa period who <laughs> knows but for now at least we know there's no golden globes for 2022 at least so for far. now so far uh but i do think that uh, you know NBC seems committed to not having a Globes in 2022 because they're going to save $60 million by not mm. having a Globes next year. So don't discount that as part of, uh, you know, the, the, the reason why they are more than happy to press pause for a year. But Clayton, your piece uh, in, in uh, at Variety.com, I mean, you go into it in, in great detail and why maybe we don't need a Globes next year. Uh, but uh, you'll recount for, for the fine folks, sort of your, your thoughts.
5: Yeah, so the Globes, and and can I just say, by the way, I actually think they have the most fun show probably of any award show. Like, people get drunk, it's fun, especially for a show that shows, like, nearly no montages. It's really fun. But their behavior for decades has been questionable and outwardly known in this space. And... Now with the revelation, and when I say revelation, the printed facts that they have no black members, which, again, we all knew, um, they come to a moment. And I think a lot of it has to do with studios and publicists are just done with them, period. And the other half was they had way too much power. These 87 randos, half of which aren't journalists anymore, <laughs> And not rewarding bad behavior. But I think one of the most prominent things I wanted to highlight, and I highlighted in my piece was that there's been a lot of self-congratulatory stuff and pats on the back from studios and publicists. And while I'm glad that people have come to the forefront to speak out, monsters are monsters because people enable them to be monsters. They gave them power. They gave them access. They returned their emails. They did all these things. And then now acting like they're shocked, has been kind of a tough pill to swallow. And we also know that their the ranks in these PR firms are not diverse. So this is a Hollywood problem, but you know, HFP does not solve the racism problem in Hollywood.
2: Yeah, it's it's glass houses, right? I mean it's it's the classic, you know, hello, yeah. get your own house in order before, yeah. you know, you really ha- get to jump on on the soapbox. Yeah.
5: And one of the uh, one last thing that I think has been really infuriating of the HFPA's response of just being defensive is like, well, we've we've rewarded black people before, which is the equivalent of I have black friends, I can't be racist, <laughs> right? Right? Which is always my favorite. It always works every time, um, you know. And not just acknowledging that, like you know, we we effed up, and we're going to do better. But they're they're saying that, but also with a caveat of people just love to pounce on us and they're, they're just doing it because they want to pile on and they th- they're acting like victims, which is also infuriating.
4: But they're not the most friendliest of, I'd say, journalists. Like, they're a very click group. If you've ever done an event with um, a junket, you know, they they 're very they think you're literally going to steal from
1: them
4: <laughs> um they're just they're not open to like you know if somebody says to you you know how do how do I get into variety like what's what's the advice you would give me you would be like here's what you need to do this, this and this, and this and if you ask somebody like how do I get into the h f p a before all of this storm happened, they were not the most friendliest of they wouldn't give you answers or they'd just be like, go look on the website, which is not the answers that, you know, of of a welcoming group. And I think the next problem is going to be who do they invite in, right? And I think, Clayton, you tweeted it, right? Do you want to be that token? Hey, I'm now in the HFP. I would
1: not want to Be that
4: person.
2: Right, right.
1: That's a really good point because, like, not only the tokenism aspect of it, but the lack of inclusion is only one part of the problem. Mm -hmm. And so if you're stepping into this organization, you have to really believe that some of these other things, the ethical, the questionable ethical things, that that is going to be changed. And I don't know any on-the-level journalist that believes that is true. Like right now things are being said that are platitudes and people are being placated and we're going to work together to resolve this. But like there are, we need to see some actual concrete results, I guess, which is, is a little maybe putting the cart before the horse because it's all cyclical. You know, we can, we have to prove that they're not being wined and dined on a fancy French Riviera set anymore. And so right now the studios and networks are saying, we won't work with you. We won't do that. But at what point do things start to slide away because people start to focus on other things, you know, like we're hyper-focused on this now, but in two months when we're Emmys, 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 are they going to start to be able to get away with a little bit more because no one's paying attention? I mean, I think that's one of the biggest issues is, you know, as Clayton was just saying, you know, we, people knew about this and enabled it because nobody was calling it out. And the minute it was starting to get called out, everybody had to pile on and be like, yep, I regret this. It's like, okay, but you (laughs) did it. Like regretting it, but you did it because you wanted the shiny award that you paid for ultimately, but it still mattered to you. And so who is going to feel comfortable getting into that? I don't know.
5: The the closing point uh, that I really want to highlight is that as someone who has fought a lot of their career, to have representation inclusivity, which don't mean the same thing. Um, How we could venture forward with the 87 people that are currently there intact and invite 20 people to come on, that one of the biggest fights I have with people in this vacuum that fight against representation inclusivity is always that they think we're asking for a spot because we're black or because we're Latino or or because you're a woman. No, we want the same opportunity, just as everyone else gets. And if I if I, I give it to an analogy of like going up to bat at a base for baseball, if I strike out, I foul out, or or you know I don't hit, a, I, I, whatever that's on me. But if I hit home run, then okay, that's dope. That's on my merit. I just want an opportunity to swing. And if the eighty seven people are there, this next twenty that come in are there specifically because they're black. Not on merit, and it will always and it will just be like that, no matter if it is or isn't. That's why they need to clear the chessboard. Yeah, there's some good, there's some good people there. You can have them reapply, but you cannot venture forward with those 87 people intact. the The public will never have full confidence that they're anything but that.
4: Well, what's interesting about that 87 right now is that none of them, not that I'm aware of, and I could be wrong, but nobody has stepped forward and said, you know what? I don't agree with this right now, what we're doing. I'm going to quit. Like, I don't want to be a part of this association. Everybody has kind of stuck with it, which says that you agree with, you've agreed, you groove at this up to this point, like nobody's quit in protest.
1: I think it speaks to what you were saying earlier, jazz about like how you found them to not be very welcoming or helpful. Like they were protecting something that they had that they probably on some levels knew they shouldn't have, you know, nobody should be being bribed, but they were, and it was benefiting them. And you're going to protect that. You don't, you don't want to give that up. I, I mean, I, intellectually, I understand that, but I think we're, you know, at this level, I think it's also people are tied to this group. And I do wonder how many people in this group have other opportunities because they can say they're an hFPA member. if it's a house yeah. of cards, you know, mm-hmm. if you do renounce it and maybe you should renounce it. but if you do, do you lose other career opportunities, and what does that do? It's it's a yeah. weird place to be. I mean, it's it's all a little murky.
5: Who's going to pitch those uh, movie script ideas if they can't do it
2: at a press conference?
1: <laughs> well, Yeah, sure.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I think the answer ultimately is going to have to be it's you got to tear it down. It's you got to yeah. close close shop and, and launch a new organization because a who's going to want to join this? Like Danielle, you were saying, who's going to want to join this organization? And and the numbers that you know NBC is demanding that they double their membership. So that means you need to find 88 more members. You're not going to find 88 people who are going to want to join this this sham organization. Netflix wants 300 people. You need to launch a new organization at that point. And and that's going to require, yeah, a lot more than just six months. So that's where it makes sense that there's just no way they're going to get their house in order in time for for the Globes next year. But ultimately, you need a a new organization. Uh, You know, you, you talk to publicists, the other thing that you do here is that, you know, they've, you know, consistently they, they have to warn their clients beforehand when, before they're going to a press conference, HFPA press conference, yes. they're going to ask semi-racist questions or awkward questions or things about your personal life. It's going to get weird. So don't be offended. It's just the HFPA. And for the longest time, everyone's like, Oh, it's just the HFPA doing their HFPA yeah. thing. You can always tell when you're at an event. Who's from the HFPA? Because they're the ones, you know, clamoring up to, you know, yeah, passing out a script or, or st- stuffing the food in their bag or who knows what. But, you know, there's there's just there's a stench attached to this organization, and I don't think you can clean that without just launching a new organization
5: uh yeah hfp is doing great so to, to sum up
1: i <laughs> just want to say i do take personal offense to that food comment i feel like that was directed at me and i'm not an hfpa <laughs> member but i do love to eat at those events and the one thing i've missed in in this pandemic are those past apps oh. those little sushi cones and sliders oh, I'm, I'm, I'm with like, you I'm,
2: I'm with you i'm with you but i don't think i've seen you bring tupperware to you know put.
1: <laughs> keyword is he hasn't seen me no. yeah.
2: there you go it, it, If you didn't see it, it didn't happen.
1: I'll be honest. I have never done that. I'll be totally cards down. I've never done that at one of these type of events. A press conference, an Emmy party. I do it at TCA because you know what? If you're going to lay a buffet out of desserts, I'm going to take a to-go box and put... Four slices of cheesecake for the rest of the week in that that's to-go true. box.
2: That's true. And by the way they they give they give us those boxes, so we're exactly. allowed. I didn't bring home. No. they provided so that to me. That's the difference. Oh, trust trust me. For years, like you know, the, the 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 guilt I've had as a parent in like not being home so many nights in a row because I'm at an event. Like somehow bringing home a treat for the kids. Yep. It's like okay, I'm being a, I'm not dad of the year, but at least yeah. like you know, I'm thinking about them. I'm bringing mm-hmm. them home something. So you know, the, when they're singing "Cats in the Cradle," uh, at <laughs> least when you're coming home, dad. I know when you're coming home, you're going to bring home a goodie. So <laughs> something. <laughs>
5: uh, that's why right, t-shirts can be very can very be very valuable in this <laughs> uh, at these events.
4: The t-shirts are great, but I do have to say, sometimes with the food, the only reason you are vulturing for that food is because you have not eaten all day, yes. and That's you true. sat through this, you know, whatever screening, and you are as, you are famished. I don't know about the rest of them, but I know for us.
5: By the way, swear to God, as I just noticed, uh, in front of me is my WandaVision utensils that got sent. I didn't at get At some those. point. Yeah, oh. those are the plastic utensils from their uh, thing. I am so influenced by this guy's is, Wait, is
1: it are you serious? It's like not it's like toss it after one use. That's a little strange, but this is, okay.
5: Jessica Jessica hates by the way swag that comes here. Like anything. <laughs> she like my wife, she hates it. But with the food, the chance I think we've got more food this year than any other year she's appreciated that transformation. Yeah. I think we're we like that.
2: Yeah, the food is nice because eventually it goes away. It's it's all the the junk that yes, I love to save, but Maria on the other hand is like <laughs> like what when
1: we need a life-size stand-up <laughs> with The Rock. Yeah.
2: Which has already freaked her out a couple of times when she's gone to the garage and there's been The Rock. At seven in the morning when you walk into a garage not expecting The Rock to be standing there, it is it is a little bit of a, a wake-up My up true call.
5: story, swear to God, you got me and Jessica fought because of you because you put up that picture of you having The Rock cut out. I didn't get that. But this brought up a fight that we had when I got a cutout of Margot Robbie from I, Tonya that I kept... And I refuse to get rid of it. And she's like, I swear to God, if the rock comes. It's not it's not entering this house. And we got to a, a real palpable argument about it. I was like, Mike, Mike is keeping his. And she was like, I don't care.
1: Yeah, but Mike doesn't have to move his across the country. That's true. Yeah. That is true. Is true.
5: It, could, it could be my carry-on. It's fine.
1: <laughs> please oh buy it gosh. a seat you have to buy it its own seat and it yep. just sits next to you like at the window
2: by the way when we get when we have to start going to the office again the rock will be my hov plus one so mm. i'm able to you know at least speed uh, speed speed to pmc headquarters so true well we'll see how you that know, goes you know pmc
1: will not reimburse you when you get a ticket mike so <laughs> i would tread lightly on that one <laughs>
2: All right, so let's talk Emmy predictions. And of course, we'll continue to talk uh, Emmy predicts throughout the season. But uh, Clayton has put up his first round of predicts. Um, So I guess, Clayton, first off, kind of highlights. You want to go down specific categories? How you want to do this?
5: Uh, I mean, yeah, I could go really quickly through them is that uh, here's the the moral of the story. Limited series aren't enough spots for all the quality that's in the contention this year. Comedy, there are too many spots for non-quality things that are in contention this year. And drama, there's eh, about a on par with any other year. Um, and TV movie, I I don't even know what to say let's, about that Let's not even talk about TV okay. movie. <laughs> uh, limited series is the category to watch. All of those categories are going to be big uh, this year. And someone big is going to miss, and we're going to be upset about it. And I don't know what or who it's going to be yet, but I just have this, like, really sneaking suspicion that maybe I may destroy you.
1: I'm so worried about that. I I know. It seems
5: like 50 years ago.
1: Everybody I talk to that is a contender is like, I love it, I love it, I love it. And so, like, that gives me hope. But, yeah, it feels like 50 years ago. and. Michaela doesn't seem like she's gonna be very visible during the campaigning window and I think that might make a difference in that category because as you said there's just so many
5: yeah and then how how well does mayor of Easttown really do because like it, it, it that's you know fresh in people's mind. The Good Lord Bird is kind of like that show that everyone really loves but doesn't have any muscle to wiggle into a five. Um, and then there's a lot of people that still love. It's a sin,
2: mm-hmm. and
5: that also felt like 50 years ago.
2: Yeah.
5: Um, so I don't. I don't. I really. I really don't know. i would say it's, it's going to be some broken hearts.
1: But then you've got the undoing, right? That feels like 50 years ago. That was supposed yeah. to be Emmy season last year. And yeah, then it
5: I, feel wasn't. Like, I feel like that's. I feel like that's Hugh Grant or Bust. But but I mean, you can't ever count out Nicole Kidman because she's Nicole. Yeah, Kidman.
1: I was going to say I feel like both of them, but. I feel like they wouldn't nominate one without nominating the other.
5: Yeah. Uh, But yeah, that's kind of the moral. I I think Queen's Gambit running its steamroll through Golden Globes and SAG, people need to keep in mind that there was nothing else there to really compete with it. And I think us assuming that it's Queen's Gambit is a mistake because I think Underground Railroad is going to do serious damage.
2: Yeah, I, I... Of of these categories, it's probably the, the the one that's that's sort of the biggest jump ball at this point.
5: Yeah, uh, and then we get to comedy, uh, where Ted Lasso is going to just like put its feet up for the season. It feels like, and the flight attendant's going to act like it's an alternative, and then there's going to be five other spots. <laughs>
1: <gasps> or, how dare you?
5: Or six other spots, rather.
1: No, I didn't mean that. No. I just meant like, there are some other comedies I really like. So i how dare you?
5: I was just talking about in terms of competition. No, I
1: know, I know.
5: Yeah. But listen, dare I say Hacks?
1: That's what I said last yeah, week. The, mm-hmm. that, that, the yeah, that hacks, hacks. the Hacks
5: train is leaving the station. It's, hacks uh, is gonna <laughs> be like, why not Hacks?
2: I don't think it's gonna be enough to overpower the, the Ted Lasso machine, but it's yeah. it's- Probably, I mean, how interesting that it's it's flight attendant and hacks two HBO Max shows that mm-hmm. are sort of the the ones that are the most in contention versus Ted Lasso.
5: Probably mm-hmm. Kaylee Cuoco's worst nightmare is going to be Gene Smart, though.
2: Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
5: I think that's I think that's what's going to I think Kaylee had it all sewn up for her, and then Hacks came and was like, "But actually, let's try not."
2: Yeah, do <laughs> we remind you it's it's the year of Smart? Uh, <laughs> I like that. You're smart. You, because uh, I, I I know you have uh, Mayor of Easttown is uh, just bubbling under in the uh, long form, but uh, again, it's it's the one two punch of Gene Smart coming on right at the right time. Yeah,
5: she's everywhere. Yeah, she's she, she's gonna do the work. I think I think she's gonna she's gonna be very uh, competitive. Um, and then there's the other kind of like like I think Black is just gonna make it back in this year maybe more than likely. I think pen 15 might have a moment for its first time because you know, which that doesn't speak to the, it's always had the quality, but it's never felt like that show that could really get in under a normal standard year. And now it's going to have the opportunity to
2: do that, which is interesting because um, it's such a is a shortened season there. There wasn't as much to it, but I think people are you know finally really appreciating pen 15 for, yeah. for what it is.
5: Can I, can I, ask, I, I don't know if I'm, am I weird and thinking Zoe's playlist is going to, Make it you're, or do it. You're weird I don't
2: little, think you're I weird. Yeah. Yeah. There's okay. there's eight
1: slots as you mentioned. <laughs> so like if this was a year five, I would say probably no. But yeah. I mean, there's been steady heat on that show. They won an Emmy last year for choreography. Jane got no- <laughs> Jane got nominated for Golden Globe. I know mm-hmm. we just you know talked about HFPa, but like people have been gradually coming to the show more and more. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: I, I think the big question comes down to is the show renewed? I mean, if it's, if it's canceled next week and we're going to find out uh, who knows, maybe by airtime. Air um,
1: <laughs> the network is pushing so hard though for Emmys for that show that I just feel like they're going to be so visible that some people, even if they get canceled, some people may not realize it.
5: Mike, I'm going to ask you, cause I'm hoping that you're going to know this. Am I right that Arrested Development is the last canceled show that won they at the Emmys? Um, Arrested Development, I think, won in its cancellation year.
2: Did it? I, yeah. I, I, I want I, I, I to say. Because like, that's going a, back. That's
5: a random fact I know. I don't know how that just spit out of me, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> but I feel like I feel like that might be true. And now I, mean, I feel like re- listeners are mm, screaming at us right now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> they are calling, calling me a moron. Cool. That's because they're,
2: they
1: they're Googling and we're just know, sitting yeah, here yeah, thinking. Yeah, yeah. yeah we're true. not Googling.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm Googling right now. Yeah. Uh but, I, I mean yeah, I want to say the, the, the one today. that I, the one that always comes to mind is the Ben Stiller show winning a, a big uh, mm. writers a- award the year that it was canceled and, and that was such a such a big deal. Yeah, um, yeah, But uh Yeah, I mean it it happens but it's very rare. Yeah, it is rare.
5: Okay. Um and then we go to drama series where I think fair assumption that the crown is going to do its thing. But I think there's some fluidity to there. Cause Handmaid's Sale is, you know, back in, in a, in a longer form season, uh, this time around, uh, Lovecraft country again, feels like a million years ago, a long
2: time ago. Yeah.
5: But you know, st- the Mandalorian, I swear to God, the Mandalorian has been that show that I have been continuously surprised of how it's been critically beloved how well it did at the Emmys last year, mm-hmm. that I think there's a shot that it does it, like really does it, and what wins what I mean? drama. You mean
2: goes oh. all the way? Wow.
1: Okay. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't go like, cool that this, far. This, I thought you were talking about nomination. I'm like, yes, obviously nomination. This is <laughs> Clayton
2: I, the Hot Take Davis right here.
1: Wow.
0: <laughs> Listen,
5: look, I think the nomination is, is there. Yes. I, I just think if something unconventional... That's inclusive, but not really inclusive in a way that's, like... It's inclusive to, like, people in the know, but not inclusive to, like, if you just look on the surface. And I think if we see Pedro make lead actor drama, which I think there's a chance for that as I well, I I would look at it as a possible spoiler. Again, I could just be fluffing this up and it's The Crown anyway, so...
4: I have it as my number two. You're not alone. I, I have it as... To above Bridgerton and Lovecraft and hatmail's maids. I agree with you. I think people really love that series. And if Pedro well, Pedro will probably get in. And you know Disney's gonna do like a huge Emmys campaign. I mean they they they're doing screenings, FYC campaigns at the Rose
5: Bowl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're buying me they're buying me an X Wing, they told me. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, X Wing <laughs> brought to my house. I'm gonna fly it. New, going awesome. New HFPA member, Clayton <laughs> Davis. Uh. <laughs> That's the one thing I forgive him for. I'm like, yep, you took, you took the X Wing. You deserved yeah. it. Yep, yeah, don't give that up. Um, can, can I just add, by the way, this is the two shows that and they're both HBO, which is interesting. In Treatment and Perry Mason.
1: I think Perry Mason feels like a million years ago. So mm-hmm. I think In Treatment over Perry Mason to get nominated. If if they're if we've come down to an either or because In Treatment is right at that right sweet spot of just
5: they're my seven eight. So you're yeah, right on Yeah, yeah, no, I know. Yeah. I'm just,
1: but I'm also just like, well, let's see what happens with. I mean, campaign. I hate I hate to be that person because we just ragged on the HFPA about campaigning, mm-hmm. but like. That is matter. such a big thing is just reminding people this show is there, who's doing what interviews, who's doing what magazines, yeah. who's doing, you know, what billboards and as you mentioned, the FYC events and stuff. And I mean, I know HBO is pushing both shows, but it feels like they're pushing. Well, actually, I don't know. I don't know if I could say they're pushing one over the other, but I just think the timing of in treatment is just prime. It's,
5: it's now and they also have we are who we are. Which is also a gajillion years ago. I think that's a long shot. it's a long shot.
2: That's a long shot. That's that's my like sort of uh, uh, sentimental pick, which I'm going to be Come writing on. about in one of my columns. Like I, I'm I'm pushing for it because because I love that show, but I, Look I at know Michael it's feelings. Look at I that. know. Go figure. <laughs> I, I know. That. Realistically, <laughs> it's not going to get a nomination, but that's why I'm pushing for it. This is going to be yeah. a, sort of my my like, hey guys, don't forget about we are who we are. Um, you don't have Bridgerton in your your mix. Clayton. I thank you
5: for asking me. I need to defend why. Bridgerton smells like Brooklyn 99 and Empire. That those years that everyone thinks it's about to and New Girl too, by the way, with the New Girl Reunion coming up soon. Thank you, Michael. Um, everyone thought their first year was gonna be this big explosion at the Emmys. Brooklyn 9 was just Andre Brouwer, Empire was just Taraji. And what the hell was the other show I just said? Oh, New Girl was just Zoe Deschanel and Max Greenfield in a miracle, Max Greenfield, and that was it. So I think Bridgerton just smells like the one that the general public will be like, "Oh, we're, you're going to do this, right?" And then Emmy will not. But there's time to convince me I otherwise. See, yeah,
1: I mean, I, I see, I see that argument, but I feel like compared to Perry Mason. It's a little bit more more on their radar, partially because it had more organic buzz this whole time.
5: Which is why I have reggae. Reggae is my taraji. Oh, for sure. Yeah. No, I I think reggae is nominated. I think reggae reggae makes it. Um, But listen, I, I have to see kind of how the season unfolds. There's always a lot of weird stuff that can happen. So I will... Yeah, it literally is it.
1: May. It's, it's yeah. the second week of May. It going be
5: so long, my God. If, I just if, left the longest <laughs> season ever. I just want to say to this.
1: Clayton, if your predictions today match your predictions at the end of June, something has gone horribly wrong. Because like things <laughs> should be moving and changing in the next few <laughs> yep. weeks as these other shows debut and as campaigns kick up. And like if we can call this right now... Why are we even doing
5: this? Things just got existential in here. <laughs> yeah. You just you just heard stars ears prick up and they said so. P Valley has a chance then. Is I what love P Valley. I talked
1: about it for Golden Globes. I was like, somebody pay attention to this show. You won't because they didn't bribe you, but somebody. <laughs> uh, you know,
4: it's such a good show.
2: I know you all have been kind of sour on the comedy race. I'm kind of bored by the drama race, to tell you the truth. I think there's more excitement in comedy than there is in drama. Um, There's more
5: passion in comedy.
2: There's passionate shows in comedy.
1: The thing for me is that I'm more excited by some of the drama shows that just aren't necessarily breaking into this top eight. Like, I'm still all about Pose. I still feel like I want to see some love for that final season. I mean, I've seen the series finale. I know it hasn't aired yet, so I'm not going to talk about it. But... Just unparalleled performances by a number of cast members, and if I say anything more, I will spoil it. So I don't want FX yelling at me, but uh, I, that, and that's why I say things like, "I hope in a few weeks when these things are available to voters, things start to shift a little." And,
5: and that's what I mean when I say comedy's devoid of like quality is because this quality that they would that we want them to choose, they typically won't. That's why, sure, like, Girls Five ever. Like people love that show. So and fun. I love <laughs> it's Girls Five so of Funny, but but you're, but you're honest with yourself, right? Yeah, but
1: in like a regular year, they would have done like a concert Fyc event, and it mm-hmm. could have actually yes. gotten a lot of attention. And like, don't get me wrong, Sarah Bareilles did an amazing live stream at the Hollywood Bowl that was on um, streamed on Friday, and it was great. But it's not the same vibe as like had they done that, you know, the way that Netflix had. Uh, Bruce Springsteen, it was Bruce Springsteen, right? Now I'm going to blend. Bruce yeah. yeah. Spring- yeah. yeah. right? Yes, yeah. thank yeah. you. Thank you. Yes. Oh my God, that was only two years ago and I already forgot. Yep. I'm so sorry. Um, you know, it's just it, things like that, I think, sometimes can make a difference. In, yep. Yeah.
5: Yeah. I mean, listen, they they, they they also still haven't done Goldberg's yet, and I think that's criminal. Hmm.
1: The Goldberg's on ABC?
5: Yes. I love the Goldberg's. The ship
1: has sailed, Clayton. This, I love This season I, I is sell- so.
5: It, Not on par it, it's it's a it's a rougher season, but Wendy McClendon Covey has been sitting there for eight seasons and they've just yeah. let her sit there.
3: That's true. And
5: it's awful. It is an awful it's their it's their great sin.
4: I just want to tag on to what Danielle said about Pose, and I think I said it last last week, but like Pose has really upped the game for the season finale. And I mean just last week with the backs with Electra's backstory, like that alone is was a phenomenal sequence and billy porter is incredible his performance is so good so i would love to see pose yeah get i think
5: i think billy's competitive so. this year again yeah be good for
2: yeah. him oh and by the way it sounds like that premiere party was quite the uh kickoff mm. for uh pose yeah. as well so people are talking yeah. right. people right. are talking well, there's a lot more to come. So so much more down the road. Exactly. So, so, so Clayton, we will have you back soon. Thank you for joining us on uh, this edition of the podcast. I miss you guys so. Indeed. Well, have a great rest of your week, everyone, and uh, we'll see you soon. Bye. It's Friday's Awards Circuit Podcast. I'm Michael Schneider. HBO Max's Made for Love, a dark comedy adapted from Alyssa Nuttig's novel of the same name, stars Kristen Milioti as Hazel Green, a 30-something woman escaping a toxic marriage to tech billionaire Byron Gogol, played by Billy Magnuson, who has implanted a futuristic monitoring device in her brain.
5: Gogol Tech's newest endeavor is a chip implanted into couples' brains to merge their thoughts.
0: Hazel and I are users one. Our minds
5: will be
0: one. Technology has improved the way we live. Why not improve the way we love? Together, we will become a singular living
3: God. I want it out, and I want a divorce.
2: Ray Romano stars as Hazel's estranged father, who in the decades since Hazel disappeared has not fared well. Kristen Milioti, of course, is a star of Broadway, film, and TV, and who's known for roles such as The Mother in How I Met Your Mother, the star of the breakout episode of Black Mirror called USS Callister, and starring opposite Andy Samberg in last year's Palm Springs. Mostly by coincidence, Milioti has found herself appearing in several projects with the sci-fi bent. And between Palm Springs and Made for Love, she's also been hanging out in the desert quite a bit. I spoke with her about all of that, about the wild ride that is made for love, and her heartbreak at the lengthy shutdown of Broadway. We began by discussing the string of success she has had over the past year, even in the midst of the pandemic.
3: It's been mind-blowing, because I just, I can't believe, I feel um, sort of astronomically grateful and blessed that I was like, A, able to shoot anything during this time, and, you know. Like B, even that I was able to put anything out, like the fact that Palm Springs came out when it did and sort of resonated in in this like different way that we had no idea it would do. Um, And the way that Made for Love weirdly has like, has resonated within like all of us being trapped and a slave to our technology and all this. Like, I just, um, I can't believe it. And it's been, uh, it's been, I'm just incredibly grateful. I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't know.
2: You know, when people write about the history of this pandemic and this year, they're going to use several of your projects as like <laughs> yeah. a good example of of what the experience was like. And this was, a, yeah. by by this was like happy coincidence, I suppose, for 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 you because you know it, it yeah. turned out, A, we were living our same lives over and over every single day, like we yeah. didn't know what day it was after a while. And B, we've been trapped in our houses for the past ten years. So. I know, <laughs> I know.
3: <laughs> I know, truly, um, sort of a twisted, demented um, kismet because both of them were, you know, Palm Springs we filmed in 2019 and some of Made for Love we filmed in 2019. We got shut down halfway through by COVID. And yeah. so they were both things that existed way before our cur- sort of current situation.
2: Yeah, yeah. But nonetheless, I mean, these these projects would have resonated regardless and it feels like they, they just resonate even more, so. Well,
3: Thank you. I hope I hope so. I do think that about both of them that I think surely they took on like a, another um, layer or something or like a different like color with everything that we're going through but I think that also they they stand on their own two feet too is just like yeah. to yeah. I don't
2: know. And it also it- I always enjoy these sort of like light sci-fi stories that are yeah. very much in present day, very much sort of, you know, it's it's very relatable, but there are like these little sci-fi elements. And,
0: yeah.
2: and and that's sort of become a little bit of your hallmark as well. And I don't know if that's also sort of just by happy coincidence that you, you sort of land yeah. in these kind of projects.
3: Completely unintentional. And in fact, wasn't until a couple times that was brought up during Palm Springs. And I, I was sort of like, Oh yeah, I guess I have done some sci-fi. And then when I was doing interviews for, with, uh, for made about made for love, um, it brought, was brought up again, completely unintentional. Yeah. I think, I mean, I love sci-fi for sure. I also, you know, I think sometimes I'm like drawn to things that are, left of center and have sort of sneaky ways of addressing bigger issues or something through like a lens of like, it's fine. It's like space or whatever. Do you know what, it, but I, I don't know. That even sounds like too calculated. This was truly just like, I don't know how that happened,
2: <laughs> but here I am. <laughs> yeah. Again, sort of, you know, happy coincidence, I suppose. It um, is. Yeah. I mean, the other, the, the, the timing of made for love coming out while we were also discussing the whole Harry and Megan, the, you know, the, the, the yeah. uh, interview, the sort of the question of you know her sort of feeling trapped and managing to escape that. Again, you couldn't have planned that, but
3: <laughs> I know you know I I did a lot of research um, for Hazel and I want to be I want to like I watched a lot of YouTube videos of women who are public figures and so I don't want to name them because I don't want to I don't want to like you know uh, even begin to. I'm just, sorry, I'm like, my brain, this quarantine has ravaged my brain. <laughs> Every time I, like, buzz, you know, when you, like, buzz your brain to be like, the word is, and then there's just, like, it's like an attic full of bats that go flying or something, Yeah, and I yeah. can't touch it. Um, yeah, I wouldn't pretend to know what these women have been through, but I, or what their actual reality is, but I, I watched a lot of interviews with women married to very successful, sometimes quite mercurial and mysterious Very famous men, and I really tried to um, infer that, like in some interviews, they seem like they are unable to speak what is actually happening, and that they have like bought into this fairy tale that has then turned into a complete nightmare. Which we keep hearing time and time again. We heard it with Princess Diana. We heard it with Meghan Markle recently. That you know, you I don't know. That was something about Hazel's story that I really loved was that understand why this 20 something from this trailer park there she lives with her dad who she has a terrible relationship with why like why would she agree to do this and it's because she's offered like the ultimate quote-unquote dream of like you'll never worry about anything again you'll be like successful you'll be you'll have all the money in the world you you will want for nothing you'll go fabulous places all you have to do is like give up everything and be with me and it's, I mean, it's like, it's it's Beauty and the Beast. It's The Little Mermaid. It's like all these movies we were raised
2: with. Right, right. You know,
3: the and, same thing happens to
2: Ariel. And it's funny, in those movies, it was a happy ending.
3: <laughs> I know. In those movies, it's, you know, I was, I, I, I was just talking about this with a friend about, um, and listen, I'm not, you know, going to say this. I'm not eloquently, and this has already sort of been observed, I think, thankfully, in the last couple of years, but like, you know, those Disney films were deeply seminal for me. And I look back at them now and I'm like, so Belle was so smart and so well read and was like, I don't need marriage. I got books. And they were like, oh, well, ugh, we're going to kill your dad if you don't marry this beast. And she's like, oh, OK. And then she's like, you know what? Screw books, I like this guy. <laughs> like, it's just like it's crazy. And Ariel, they take away her voice and they make her say goodbye to her family forever so yeah. that she can go off with a prince that she's known for like three Days like oh he, she when they went for like one lagoon ride, she saw him on one rock and she was like, all right, I'll say goodbye to my family. Like I would love to see the second part when she is out of the sea and having to see how much it sucks up here.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's <laughs> kind of made for love, right? I mean, that's uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, ten years for for Hazel. I mean, what what did you what do you make of Hazel and and the fact that she survived ten years? I mean, she was already sort of a survivor of trauma, losing her mother and and. Yeah relationship with her dad. She enters another world where she has a a different kind of trauma. And she finally met 10 years. Like how how can anyone even function after being in in sort of that world for 10 years? What what do you think of her and and sort of her experience in getting out of that? And and how did you play to that?
3: Well, something, I feel like two things come to mind. Um, Something that really Uh, appealed to me about her was that I don't think she's someone who thinks much before she acts and I'm someone who's like a prisoner of my own brain like I think about things way too much and she it's almost a little bit you know there's a scene when her and Byron have this fight it's in episode three and they sort of hash out the last 10 years of their marriage and he says, and he's now seen through her eyes a bit. And he's like, you don't feel anything. You don't know what you feel. You don't know what you think. You just kind of exist. And you're not in touch with any of yourself. You have no idea how to be loved. You have no idea how to, you think you're worthless. You're sort of just this, um this shell who's like cut off from everything. And I think you know, that's how she survived. I think we see this time and time again, I mean, we know there's a lot of unhappy marriages and I think people just numb themselves. And I think, um, she just completely froze herself. And another thing I was very interested in outside of her sort of like inability to, uh, not her inability, but her sort of proclivity of just acting without thinking is that what I like is that she sort of like has to return to the place where she was arrested developmentally. Like to me, there always seemed like a couple of hazels. There was the hazel in the hub that was this sort of, um, I watched a lot of like wellness, like videos of like these women who run these giant corporations and are sort of like very, very like sweet and talk up here and everything. And then she has to return to being this like feral dirt kid where she sort of left off. Like she has to sort of go back to go in order to like heal through all this trauma that you're talking about. And then she sort of becomes this amalgamation of the two by the end, you know, not to spoil anything, but then she's like hit with an even bigger uh, challenge.
2: Yeah. And we can get to the, the spoilers in a, yeah. in a bit. Well, we'll, we'll tell people to like turn down their, their, their podcasting machines. See, I can't I know, remember I what know. they're
3: calling
2: people <laughs> But
3: or did that answer your question?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Because it's you know, you're right. There are sort of several Hazels. I think she surprises herself uh, several yeah. times uh, along the way and in, in sort of protecting herself when she's back outside in, in the real yeah. world.
3: Uh, like another thing, you know, when I first signed on to this and again, this is not something that's like implicitly stated or that we like do with a heavy hand, but. One of my favorite films, a deeply seminal film for me, alongside of Beauty and the Beast and The Little Mermaid, was um, Kill Bill, Volume 1 and 2. And that doing something like that has always been my dream. But something I found very funny about Hazel was that there were like parts of her survival story that, like, it's dark, but to me it's very funny, that if you took... Um, Beatrix kiddo and she actually had no skills but had to get out of those things that always struck me as like very I mean this woman is like dealing with an assassin after her running from like her tech billionaire husband except that she has no skills she has like she can barely hold a shotgun and I always found that very very funny but she sort of always gets by by like the skin of her teeth sort of I guess I just thought of that because of like the how does she survive it
2: yeah no, and there there's a definite sort of badass uh, aspect to, to Hazel, and and uh, you know the, the the fact that she she manages to finally escape with the help of a dolphin. Um, yeah. But uh, let's talk about the relationship with uh, yeah, her father, played by the amazing Ray Romano, um, who has continued to just become like such a dramatic powerhouse. Uh, you know, going from back when he was just like a stand-up comedian who had his sitcom, and now like the kind of things that he does are, are sort yeah. of fun to watch. And, and this is another sort of quirky yet heartbreaking role. Um, what did you think of, of Hazel's relationship with her father and the whole aspect of the synthetic and, and sort of that, that side of that?
3: Um, I mean, well, first of all, not, not a, enough can't be said about Ray Romano, who's truly astonishing. And I also, you know, I grew up on everybody loves Raymond and there's a lot of emotional stuff in that show. Like I know people are, they're like, like he's always been such a like grounded, emotional powerhouse, even though that was like sort of more um, comedic. I'm just, I, I love him in everything. Um, and um,
2: yeah.
3: as for like Hazel and Herbert and the Diane of it all, the synthetic partner, you know, I, I was... The parallels there are really interesting that, you know, Hazel was Byron's doll for many years and that um, Herbert can no longer connect or maybe doesn't doesn't desire to connect to anyone, and I think that actually they are Herbert and Hazel are so similar in like the amount of walls that they've put up and the numbing of um of their wants and their desires, and I think that um, they've both that I always imagined that you know her mother was sort of the glue that held them together. And without her, they, they just, they're too, they're way too similar and they can't be around each other. Yeah. And they're too over, I don't think they know how to tap into actually, you know, you see it a tiny bit throughout the show. Um, I think it's too scary for either of them to tap into actually like how much they need each other and love each other.
2: Yeah. But yeah, you're right. You start to see those those elements and, and. Time Hazel becomes very protective of of her father and 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 vice versa. Um, It's there's some some real interesting growth there uh, toward the end, leading to the ultimate sacrifice that uh, you know the the spoiler is all about. uh, Yeah, you know, got to have a season two, right? So you got to have some sort of cliffhanger, and and there's there's a lot there. Yeah. um what was that like by the way to have to sort of to be, be filming and then have to put everything on pause for for covid and then come back in a very different sort of environment and different way of filming uh, you don't really you, you don't see any sort of continuity issue on on no. screen but um,
3: I, yeah our 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 crew and creatives they all it, it is such a testament to them that it is seamless because there are shots in this show that you know, I'm facing you and it's 2019. And then I turn over my shoulder and it's to December, 2020. Like it's, we had to, you know, we, we block shot this, which, um, so you're shooting everything completely out of order. So there were some things that like we grabbed outside. So like, there'll be one scene, right. Of us like walking into a place, talking and walking out. And it's three separate months from two separate years. It's it's crazy. Um, you know, I think the silver lining of us being, uh, going on a break for six months was that Christina and Alyssa, Christina, our showrunner and Alyssa, our um, co-creator and she's who wrote the novel. They were sort of able to really sit with everything we'd shot and everything that we were supposed to shoot and everything that had been written and sort of like call back through it and be like, well, actually do we want to do that now? So it ended up being that we were able to, I think, go further with certain things and, um, you know, create some really new, exciting things that I think if that hadn't happened, we would have just kept like chugging along at this insane pace that you know television chugs along at. Yeah, just crazy.
2: But you're right; it does seem like it gave them more time to sort of uh, you know figure figure things out. Um, yeah. What, what was your? Uh, had you read the novel before they approached you, or, or what was sort of how did they first pitch you on on the show?
3: No, I I never read the novel. I have since; it's incredible. Um, I was sent the script, I was sent the pilot script and sort of freaked out because I hadn't read anything like that in a really long time. And then I sort of very aggressively targeted them and was just kind of like banging on their door a lot, being like, what about me? Can I, (laughs) will you meet with me? Like, I was really, really um, excited for it. And then once we got into um, pre-production... They, I sort of, it became sort of apparent early on that the, they were going to deviate from the book and sort of make it its own thing. And so I eventually left that um, sort of alone, even though Hazel is still, she's pretty much the same, but there's like a lot of different plot stuff. Um,
2: yeah.
3: yeah. Have you read it?
2: I haven't. I haven't. Oh, okay. so I, I wonder what that's going to be like to, you know, watch the show first, then go back to the book versus the other one.
3: Yeah. Way. Yeah. It's there's like element, you know, Herb, Herbert and Hazel are still very much themselves. And I think elements of Byron are too. But it's it is uh it's so cool, too, that Alyssa wrote this because it was also really amazing to know that it was coming from the same brain as well. And so she knows these characters better than anyone. Um It was very cool.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, well, talk a little bit more about the relationship between Hazel and, and Byron and also uh, about your real-life partner, Billy, who you've worked with. Yeah. And, and so you had sort of a, a little bit of a shorthand, I assume, in, in sort of you're creating this couple. Um, so, so what... Yeah.
3: Working with Billy was... I've known Billy for 10 years. We were first cast together as a married couple in this indie film about 10 years ago that we were, like, entirely cut out of basically. And they, it was like one of those situations where we made up these characters and they would, they'd be like, and open it up and like, do whatever you want. And then they didn't know that they'd hired like, you know, two like Muppets, um, absolute maniac Muppets. And so we would go like bigger and, bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And eventually they kept like asking us to move further and further back into the shot and then pretty much cut us out of the film. Yeah. <laughs> and but so I met him then and, you know, we really hit it off and we both come from um, theater in New York and so then we would, uh, I would see him in plays and he would see me in plays. And then when we, we both did two Broadway shows that shared like an alleyway. So we would see each other during intermission. Um, and then we did Black Mirror together. Like we just, I think I I adore him and I think he's so immensely talented. And um, it was such a joy to work with him because I think, you know, we have sort of very similar styles of just having been used to like rehearsal rooms where you throw everything on the floor. Um, that's sort of what it's like to be able to work together, which is great. And, you know, um, it's, I feel very safe with him and like I can sort of try anything. And so that's that's really great. Cause that relationship is such a, a fine line to toe, you know, between Byron and Hazel.
2: Yeah, and, and I wonder, I mean, how much affection do you think Hazel still has for, for Byron? Um, where would you say that is? I mean, she, you know, as we go into spoiler alert, she, she eventually does agree to return, right. um, You know, to help her father, but, you know, she wouldn't have, I think, done that at all. If she, she really like felt that this, her life was in danger or, or, you know, there, there, I'm sure there must've been something about Byron that still sort of brought her back or maybe not.
3: I think for someone like Hazel who it's been, you know, I don't think she's someone who has felt a lot of like a lot of love in her life. And I think that even though he is abusive and even though he is, his way of expressing love is awful and, and yeah, and abusive. I think that, um, It's like the one sort of like, like in a way he's the opposite of, of Herbert. Right. I mean, obviously like the way she was loved by her family. And we don't know much about her relationship with her mom, but like Herbert was pretty absent and she was sort of always an afterthought. And then the opposite of the spectrum is Byron who is so obsessed with her that he has like tailor made. I mean, he's like, he literally, he monitors her orgasms every morning. He like, everything is for her, but it's in this like uh, constricting and suffocating way Um, but I think, you know, at least early on, I think he made her feel special before he made her want to end her life. And I don't know, sometimes it's less, it's a little tricky because I think she's going back because she has to, Mm -hmm. I do think. What's like an interesting line that is towed with the the scene with them and the, uh, the episode with them in the diner where they sort of go over everything is that like he is the only person in her life the last ten years she's no friends she's been in touch with no one like in a way like it's sort of the devil you know um, and she has no resources whatsoever other than this like scrappiness that keeps coming up from the way she was raised or the way she was when she was a teenager, sort of like going back to like that thing I mentioned earlier where she was, she sort of has to like turn, return to where she was like arrested basically. But I don't know. Um, I think some of it is maybe hard to put into words, Yeah. but she, you know, yeah, I don't know. That's one of the things I find really interesting about it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And again, Billy sort of playing that Elon Musk-esque kind of uh character. Yeah. He, he nails it. I mean, it's it's, you know, it's it's chilling and fascinating, uh, particularly right. when they they when he enters the real world and and yeah. also has no idea how to how to function in right. the real world uh, yeah. after having been in a bubble himself for so long.
3: Right. It's interesting to me. I think another thing that like when we first, uh, when I first signed on to it was that it's ultimately, I mean, this show is about so many things. It's about a lot, but one of the things I really like is that it's a, it's all these people are desperate to communicate with each other and completely incapable of doing so. Mm -hmm. And the ways in which they choose to communicate with each other are absolutely insane. And yet that's not that different to me than like the world, that it's this show that is obviously very heightened, but I think Um, people experience this, that we're all sort of like, we want to be seen by each other. And we want to, we, I don't know, sometimes require like specific ways of communicating. And it's a lot of like ships passing in the night and that, show this show is that like on steroids do you know what i mean
2: yeah yeah especially even with like the the side characters like kim whitley's character who's sometimes a nun sometimes not a nun and, yeah. and you know could be perfect for herbert but they're they just they're they've sort of connected but not quite right. and, and you know it's yeah. like they, they got so close but just yeah. didn't get there yeah and, yeah you see that with a lot of the relationships in this show as well
6: yeah yeah and,
2: and that's I, I also what season two. I'm sure we'll, we'll sort of uh, explore a little bit more. So yeah. that's exciting to have more of that. Um, yeah. By the way, since you are now sort of the 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 star of the desert, do you get like like some sort of like VIP pass to Coachella at the very least?
3: I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I know that that's been brought to my attention too. Um, yeah, I guess it was two things back-to-back back where I do a lot of running in the desert. Um, I would not like to return to the desert anytime soon. I respect the desert. Yeah. But, um, yeah, and it's great for stuff like that. But, no, I don't think I get a free pass to Coachella. Although yeah. I think Coachella would also be, like, my worst nightmare. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, so you could be the queen of Coachella.
3: I don't, I don't love I, – I get very, like um, – God, I feel like I turn into like a Larry David character or something every time I'm at an outdoor music festival because I can't stand that everyone's talking right? and and I can't hear the music and the acoustics are bad. And like, basically, when I see a concert, I want everyone to be like really quiet so I can hear everything, which is not what a concert is. Yeah.
2: Well, it's better for theater. So, speaking of of theater, as Broadway starts to open again, I mean, this has been a tough year for for yeah. that community. And and what's that, you know, been like for for you, for your friends, and and your hope that as we get back to some sort of normalcy, that Broadway can kind of return to what it was.
3: I mean, it's been devastating. Um, and I don't even think I'd realized, even from just a personal standpoint, that. I guess I'd never thought about it that like I go to see plays constantly just because my friends are, have are either in them or wrote them or directed them. And it's such this thing. It's such an incredible community here of um, theater actors in New York and see, or theater artists, you know, writers and directors too. And, um, how much I took that for granted. I would see shows all the time. And then you go out afterward and you have a couple drinks and you discuss them. And that was such a huge part of my life. And I uh, will never take that for granted again, um i'm interested to see how it comes back because there's a lot about it that really needs to change both like as an institution and also from the pandemic standpoint i don't know how a tourism-based industry where we all have to sit inside together like I, i i i'm so hopeful but i'm like well, a lot of people aren't getting the vaccine. Like, will people refuse to wear masks? Like, I don't, I don't know, but I'm very, very hopeful that it will come back and sort of go through like a rebirth.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Cause I you, miss it terribly.
2: Do you miss being on stage?
3: Oh, terribly. I mean, so much. I can't, I was supposed to do a play this year actually. Um, and I think about it a lot and I think about, you know, I think about the last time I was on a, was on stage was doing a show at UCB in LA in, on um, Franklin and that we all sat backstage and that you've been to that UCB. Oh, yeah. 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 In that little green room. And we were all talking about like one of the performers that night. He was like, well, I read that like COVID is going to be this. It's going to be like the Spanish flu and that, you know, the, the, it's going to be hundreds of thousands of lives lost. And we were like, I don't know. That seems like, wouldn't we know about that if that were the case? Like, wouldn't they be telling us, like, why then why are we here? And like 10 days later,
6: right. we were down.
3: And I think about that show on stage last night and I had um, such an absolute ball. Um, I was paired. It was this it's this like um, show called Gravid Water. And I was paired with Jason Mansukis actually, and it was like the most, one of the most fun times I've ever done that show. And I think about how I had no idea that that was going to be like the last time I was on the stage for years. Yeah. It's crazy.
2: And here we are a year later.
3: Here we right? are a year later. And, and also, you know, I just went to, um, David Byrne did a show here at the Armory. Did you read about that?
2: Oh, is that different from the the uh, the, the, okay. the stage show? Did he do so, He yeah. did something new?
3: He did this thing, it was two weeks ago. um, Oh,
2: no, I missed this.
3: It's called Social, and you sort of, like, he leads you through a dance in this giant armory, and it's socially distanced, and you get tested before you go in, and everyone's in masks, and it was really, really beautiful and overwhelming. But I was excited by the fact that, like, we have started within the confines of whatever this, like, current new reality is. um, We have tried to make our way through and figure out how to get back to live performances, and so I am very hopeful, but yeah, I miss it terribly.
2: Yeah. Hey, by the way, I wanted to give you a congratulations because I thought this was hysterical that you won the, what was it, the uh, The breakthrough performance by the Hollywood Critics Association. Oh, yeah. Uh, like, which is great, but you've been around a while.
6: <laughs> I have been around for a while,
2: yeah. I love, I love the, the film folks who are like, oh, yeah, we just discovered Christian Migliani. I'm like, where have you been?
3: Yeah, I know. <laughs> It was sweet. It was, it was, it's always like lovely to be, you know, I don't know, acknowledged in any, in any way, but um, yeah, I haven't been around for a a second, (laughs) but I'll take
2: it. Hey, you know, it's, we like to say in TV, it's like, this is, this is where the good stuff's actually happening right now. True
3: though. I mean, it's wild. Like I've been doing this professionally for, I don't know, I guess like a little over 10 years, maybe like 12 years. And Oh no, even longer. What am I saying? like 15 years, Jesus, I have no concept of time. (laughs) And in that 15 years, I've already seen like, you know, I remember even seven years ago, people were like, Oh, I don't do TV. And there's no way. No, I would never do TV. Like I remember meeting people like that. And now it's like the place to be because you are able to sit with something for longer and like really marinate in it. And you can like draw it out. Out and actually like explore these characters as well as like I know a myriad of other reasons, but it's wild to now see like, you know, like Julia Roberts on TV and it's crazy. It's cool.
2: Yeah. You're like, welcome to the cool kids club. We've yeah. wild.
3: Exactly. We've been here for a while. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
2: So yeah. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about, you know, they just announced how I met your father. Oh yeah. What'd you think? What do you what do you think? They're they're revisiting the uh, the, the brand.
3: Yeah, I mean, as they should. I, I think they did make a pilot of that.
2: They did with Greta Gerwig. With Greta
3: Gerwig, yeah. With, with Greta Gerwig, yeah. Sure. I mean, I love Craig and Carter and that whole crew. And, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see, like, how they, um, how they s- revisit, like, another story like that. But I think it's great. You know, it's in great hands. Bye. I would be more worried if it wasn't in their hands, if it was just, like, some sort of – but um, they really know what they're doing.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, they played with time so much. Maybe, maybe yeah. there's still a role for you to just show up in a cameo, be sitting in a oh, yeah. shop <laughs> or you know, so, something like I wanted to somehow see that in the pilot, but we'll yeah. See. So how, uh, how does this year look for you? What's, uh, what's the plan for, for, uh, the 2021 for you as, as we slowly get back into the swing of things. Like,
3: um, as a human or as a, Oh,
2: both. <laughs> yes, yeah, as, per- as a human, but also as as uh, um, as a working actor.
3: I mean, work wise, there's like a bunch of things up in the air right now that would all shoot sort of in the second half of this year, um, starting in the summer. But uh, you know, it's all in this crazy new world of COVID. Like it, it's really exciting because it feels like everything's starting back up again. But everything is in this tentative. Like I think we're gonna go this time, but we might go a month later. Like there's a lot of that and a lot of like, um, is it called bottlenecking when like things are all trying to get down? Yeah. yeah. Oh, the, right. Cause like so much has been on hold for a year and a half or, or a little over a year. So I feel like there's this crazy, like everyone's like trying to get in and like finish their thing. Um, So I have a couple things, but none of which are like official. Yeah. So I don't want to jinx anything or, or like, you know, Literally, contractually, make a huge mistake. <laughs>
2: next, I, but next year, I mean, there's going to be so much good stuff. I mean, there're going to be so many shows, movies, as, as everyone kind of gets back to that. So, so that yeah. cool.
3: and it was, you know, when we shot the second half of Made for Love in COVID, it was really um, we found like we did, we found a way. Like our show was really safe. We were really, really strict. Um, everyone was okay. Like it was, it was, it was very uh, cool to see how we found a way through that.
2: That's Kristen Milioti, star of Made for Love, now streaming on HBO Max. And after the break, Jazz Tanke catches up with the one and only Catherine Zeta-Jones. From Los Angeles, this is Variety's Awards Circuit Podcast. And we're back. It's the Awards Circuit Podcast. I'm Michael Schneider. Prodigal Son fans were saddened to learn that the Fox drama had been canceled this week after two seasons. The series follows Malcolm Bright, played by Tom Payne, a criminal profiler with a rare talent for getting inside the minds of killers. He learned how they think because his father, Dr. Martin Whitley, played by Michael Sheen, was a notorious serial killer known as The Surgeon. Now he's using his twisted genius to help the NYPD solve their most puzzling murders. Academy Award and Tony winner Catherine Zeta-Jones joined Prodigal Son in season two as Claremont's newest psychiatric resident doctor, Dr. Vivian Capshaw. Variety's Jazz Tanke recently spoke with Zeta-Jones, unfortunately prior to the news of the cancellation, but they had a great chat about her first role on TV, working with Michael Sheen, and who she wants to work with next. They began by discussing being fellow Brits and comparing accents.
7: I must say... I I get it like a little, you know, a little, my hair's on my arm. When I hear a British accent, you know, it's, it's like, even though I don't never met you, I feel like I know you, you know, it's like, it's the expats, you know, it's like, (laughs) we all kind of have that one thing in common, which is, which is great.
6: I love it. But you know what, Um, you know, as a South Londoner, I, you know, I moved here six or seven years ago and people say, you know, you have that mid-Atlantic accent where it's still a bit British,
7: but, it's a, It's very strange because one, if you've never been around a lot of Americans, like for any length of time, if you, if like if you're a Brit, like Brit who's never left Britain, um, it's it, it's it's like a why has she got that American accent? And it's not a precocious kind of pretentious thing. It's just, especially for me as an actor. Put it this way, you know, I have a Welsh accent. So from the very beginning of my career, which was like when I was 10 years old, I would have to disguise my accent. So I am pre-programmed, like sonar ears, to pick up accents and to it's like music to me. So um, um it's really not a pretentious thing that, you know, you know, that I've acquired this. You know, this Americanism, it's just that my children have American accents, my husband's American accents, I've been here longer than you, I've been in the States now about 22 years, I think, and so it's just by osmosis that I have an accent. And also when I came across the pond, it was paramount for me to be able to prove to the American producers, creative directors that I was able to play an American. So I went out of my way in my pride when I was first came to a, to um, to L.A., actually, and I was. Even though I I was known in Britain for my television and stage work, when I arrived in in L.A., I was completely unknown, right? So a few things happened. First of all, it was very humbling. It was like starting afresh. Um, I'd go to castings and they'd go, so what have you done before? Meanwhile, I had a very big show and I'd been working Mm -hmm. since I was nine years old over in Britain. And there was something that was very humbling about that starting afresh a new lease of life in a different world and so I remember when I was waiting for that 10-minute casting call that I would have in a week I'd be listening and working and listening for not just now acquiring as a British actor's, actor all the regional accents that I would have to do as an actor in Britain, now I was thinking, wow, what if I'm called to, upon to be a Southern girl, woman, or a, a New Yorker? And, and so, again, I was always constantly, you know, trying to tune into that accent. So when, I, when I'm with my parents, I'm full-on Welsh, <laughs> Like Michael thinks I'm actually speaking a different language every now and again. Like I'm speaking the Welsh language, which which is a language, not an accent. And so um, that's that's what it is. But um, I must say it's uh, I've had a great innings, which is a very British thing, you know, in relation (laughs) to cricket, which is our national game Um, in America. You know, I've I've uh, I've enjoyed I've enjoyed playing Americans. I've enjoyed being here, and like I said, I met my husband here, and, and I have two fabulous American kids I love it. I love that we started
6: off talking about accents, but, you know, whilst we're talking about your TV career, before we even talk about Podigal Son, um, you know, Darling Buds of May was such a breath of fresh air. I mean, it's on Amazon Prime if people want to go off and watch
7: it. Um, yeah. What are you, my remember? youth kids? Me and my youth, like a wee baron, a wee baron just out of the crib. Um, yes, the darling. Well, I was a theater actress, you know. I I, I started at nine years old in the theater in London, which is in the West End, which is the Broadway equivalent in, in Britain. And I think actors in Britain come from a theater mentality because it's not Hollywood, you know. There was a very great always has been a wonderful British film community but it's a small island community you know it's a smaller film community as opposed to Hollywood television has always been good and I happened upon my very first tv role to be surrounded by some fantastic actors and my father the lead being which is David Jason, who is a national treasure as a television actor in Britain. Like I'm trying to think of American equivalent, but it is the he's a national treasure. And the show became a huge success. We were like the top-rated show of the time. It was based on H. U. Bates novels, shot on film a limited series, just seven episodes, six episodes each year. We did it for, for two and a half years with a Christmas special thrown in there. And it's become like a little bit of a national treasure within itself. Um, but it's it's great to be now back on television because television has now become such an equal pairing in the States to film. I mean, when you think of, the industry as we see it today. When I first came to America um, 20 years ago, or 22 years ago, it's longer than that, I'm I'm terrible with dates, but um, there was a snobbery about film, TV, Mm -hmm. and then Broadway was on on its own on the East Coast, and, and Broadway actors were Broadway actors. There was TV, and there were film stars, and never, 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 never does that intermix or intertwine. So now we're in a, an environment where there's just great work on both television, on the small screen, on film, on streaming services. And as an actor, it gives us that snobbery of, oh, if you don't, if you're not, if you do, if you're a film actor and you do TV, it's a step down. That's all gone. And it's wonderfully liberating for an actor because I always seek what's on the page and with whom I would be working with. That's what's, what excites me about doing a job. <clears throat> and it doesn't matter if that's on stage, if it's on TV, if it's on film, um, it's, what, it's, it's, it's what that creative environment is and what, what, what the words that I get to do and the character that I get to create. And so I'm really glad that that snobbery is gone, and it's it's um, it's fun now to be able to, especially at my, this time in my career, I have to say, mm. to be able to go, ooh, I like that show. Ooh, I've always wanted to work with that actor, and the two producers I've been trying to work with for a few th- on a few things that never worked out. All those elements have come together in one show that is a fun show that people like. Mm -hmm. I want to be part of that. I want to be in that gang for a while, you know? And so that's how prodigal son came about for me this time. And that's how feud came about. The attraction there was Ryan Murphy and working with two of my idols, you know, Jessica Lange and and Susan Sarandon. It's like, I want to work with those ladies. And I certainly want to be in Ryan Murphy's gang, you know? So that's how it comes about now in, in, in my world. And I think if you have those fundamentals, it lends itself to, to a really good work and experience. And each time I've gone with those kind of commodities, it's worked out great for me. I've had a, I've had a blast on the show.
6: I love that. It looks like you're having a blast on Prodigal Son. I mean, what was it about Vivian on the page that said yes? This is what I have to do. Aside from starring with Michael Sheen and watching on the show.
7: Jazz, it was more the way the the formula of *Prodigal Sun works. I had a script of an introduction of a character that had two scenes of me Mm -hmm. giving, welcoming a serial killer to do chores in my infirmary. That's what I got. What was attractive was when I spoke to our producers and they pitched me a character arc. And knowing the way in which the show is, is um, angled, I knew that I had kind of a ticket to push the boat out a bit more, you know, and be dangerous. And I, they gave me the arc and I, I, I kind of embellished it and i said if you can guarantee that i could play this character the way that you just tell me she's going i'm going to throw off my parachute because i don't have a script to say okay i'm in because it's right here in black and white yeah. i said i'm going to just give my pa- put my parachute back in its bag and just jump in here and free you know free for- just like jump in and and, and they said yeah and, and the credit when it's due it got juicy, just as juicy as what they pitched me. And juicy in that it's, I, I don't know, I, I always, when I, I gravitate, when I watch other, my peers and other shows and other people's work, I gravitate to the darker side of, of human nature and character traits. I think as an actor, it gives you so much more fun to, to, to delve into that. Darker side, and the way the form, the way it works on *Prodigal Son* is that, you know, I shot, I shot my first scene, and like halfway through shooting that, my first uh, episode, and then the scripts just keep dropping. You know, in the middle of it, we shoot the next episode, then the next script drops, and we all read it until the thing. And there's something very scary about that, and very freeing, because. I had to, it was a wonderful exercise for me as an actor, which I hadn't done in a while. And it's very good for actors to do, is that you create such a huge, complex backstory then you put it in a little pressure cooker. So when the script drops, you just got everything boiling under the surface. So you can just lift the lid. And then when that episode ends, you've still got so much more left to go, whichever which the way the script turns out. And and it was fun to do that. It was um, an excellent exercise for me because it didn't... I'm usually so like, okay, I need the beginning and the middle and the end of a script and I need to make my arc so that when I shoot it, usually out of order, we never shoot chronologically ever... Um, so you're shooting the end, and the beginning, and the middle, and the you know. So I know as an actor exactly where I am when I turn up on a Wednesday, or where I am in the scene. And I didn't have this on this on this show. It was like I'm gonna just say you know. And working with Michael Sheen, which um, I knew that it's so strange when it's just a. Something in your belly knows that I knew that I would have chemistry with that guy on on screen. I knew that I would be able to work well with him. And I've, there's been actors that I've in my career that I've done that, like Antonio Banderas, for example. You know, he's Spanish, but I, 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 and this was way before I was cast in Zorro. When I saw him on screen, he got into my bucket list of I want to work with him. The same with Clooney. Um, The same with Brad, you know, um, with Anthony Hopkins, for example, he'd already directed me in a play in Britain. So I knew that I would have a dynamic with him on screen and the the process would be great and, and touch wood. And thank God my instinct has always been right. So for Michael Sheen and I, we were in in the, we were like doing a two-handed play really because our character store arc was so removed from the outside world. We were in the confines of this very gray, dark, basically like a black box theater, you know, where, you know, there's come into this world and we'll do create this world for a while. And it was was interesting just to have that storyline where it was just me and him. And then as I do the last few episodes go out into the world and you see Vivian capture out into the world and it gets crazy. And you (laughs) see why these two characters in Claremont Psychiatric Hospital have a connection because there's a strain within my character that is very similar to the strain that he has. And he's a serial killer. So there's a sociopathic similarity to these characters.
6: I love that. I love her darkness and, you know, the chemistry that you have with Michael is is crazy. But what did you make, you know, you talked about the backstory. What did you make of her butterscotch obsession when you see that on the
7: page? It made me laugh when I read it. and And usually when, you know, I read a script, very first up, I always read I don't read the, the stage directions I just do the dialogue you know so I get in my head when I'm reading a script <coughs> what people are hearing you know I see where the scene is set and then I just read the, you know but the butterscotch was in like italics you know and I went butterscotch and what made me laugh and what added to the kind of dynamic is that when I first meet the Martin Whitley character, who in my backstory, she's known. She may have worked with him before. She may have studied under him. She may have been scorned by him. She may have she, she may have aspired to him, both as a surgeon and both as the surgeon when he became infamous, be, beca- becoming a serial killer. Something bad about a doctor becoming a serial killer there's something bad about my character being a doctor and being dark and being dangerous because doctors are a bit like clergymen you know they're there to protect Mm -hmm. us and when they don't it's really traumatic because you go to them to heal you to help you through and to make you better Um, and so When he smells, when I'm the only woman in the facility and a serial killer who has been sequestered in confinement comes into a room and doesn't smell the scent of a woman, but butterscotch? (laughs) It's like, for me, it made me laugh. (laughs) It's like, okay, so my backstory is my character put perfume on because she knew she was meeting Martin Whitley that day, but he didn't smell that. He didn't smell the scent of a woman. He smelled butterscotch. (laughs) And so it gave me a little, okay, I'm in trouble. So anyway, yeah, it's, it's it's a very small detail. What was nice about the writing in this is that the writers weren't precious about their work. I mean, when those scripts dropped, You know, I had in my head which way it was going and they were they were right on it. But there were certain nuances that um, I wanted to inject or something that was written that I knew that they meant something, but I didn't understand it. They need to explain it more to me. They were very open to just jumping on the phone all the time, you know, because the immediacy is that we don't have any rehearsals, especially by shooting during COVID, we we literally go down with our masks on onto the step, the set. We block where we're gonna go physically a few times so that the crew know where to place the camera. We go back into our rooms, they get the camera set up, we go down, we take our masks off, and we shoot. And so you've got to be pretty, it's not like nah, I don't know about this. What do we try it this way? it's like this, you know? Um, and so, and so you, you want to be pretty prepared and have every, every, um, you know, every question answered before you step on the floor. Um, and that was great working with such great actors because they'd all done their homework too. And they had, when they, we rehearsed the scene, they had some surprises the way, you know, and, and especially with my, with Michael, you know, I had it all planned out in my head and he came, he just played it completely different. And so I went, well, that's fun. I'll play it different too. And so having this kind of like spider's web in our story, I mean, is he the spider and I'm the fly? Or am I the fly and he's the spider? You know, who's who's the cat and who's the mouse in this game? You know, and so that's, um, it's fun to play. Well, the who is the spider and who's the fly
6: that fantasy sequence in the penultimate episode was brilliant I got a little bit of the Velva Kelly vibes coming from her
7: Um, I I kind of I kind of had this idea of um of this fan you know when, when they had this fantasy and they had us dancing and I said no his fantasy has to be dark and sick you know, it has to be a kind of misogynistic, kind of Roger Rabbit-esque kind of woman with the lipstick and the hair and the bosom. You know, it has to be a quintessential fantasy. But I wanted it to be dark. And I came up with, um, I asked the director, I wanted to wear a red lip. And I said, I wanted to smear the red and make it blood. Because no matter how someone like Martin Whitley has a fantasy it's a little dark and it's a little bloody, you know? And so that, it was a lot of fun doing that. And uh, they went with my blood idea, but I, it had to be a one-shot wonder with the blood because we couldn't we couldn't reset it. Because <laughs> I had to take all that glam makeup and dress off and get back into my white doctor's coat for the afternoon. So <laughs> you can do the blood thing, after, but we have to do it in one take. So I went, I'm gay. And so we did it. Um, but that's the beauty of the show, too. You know, there's, there's, as long as the characters, we play them real, there's a, there's a fantasy kind of surreal aspect to the show, which can take you out of and, 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 and push the boat out a bit on the characters. And, and as long as you keep true, it, those fantasy sequences, and, and I have another one, too, that happens in um, the next episode after, you know, this one where, I, I, they go into my mind, and it's, it's it's it really is a it's a humorous psychological family story, basically, you know. With and and the beauty of of, of of you know of making, I think for me as a as an actor playing a bad character or somebody who is not a goody two shoes, is that you want the audience to kind of like you. Um, and I know that you know Michael Sheen has done such a great job in making a serial killer so likable. you mm-hmm. know he's a, he's a serial killer, but you like him, and for my Absolutely. character i didn't I didn't have you know 12, 13 episodes in season one to to slowly manipulate the audience you know I have from season two, episode seven to 13, and that's my story. That's it in a nutshell. And as her, as a real character traits start to unfold, I didn't need to be, I didn't need the audience to like me because they're rooting for the bad guy that they like anyway, and he's untouchable. They don't want anyone to hurt him. They don't want anyone to make him sad. They don't want anyone to change him because, as bad as he is, they like him. So it was okay for me to play the bad girl. Um, I didn't need to make the audience like me because they can't like two people in one scene. They have right. to somebody, and, they've, and, and, and Martin Whitley is already in the palm of their hands. I know he's so
6: good, and you're saying again, why do I like him? Why yeah. do I? like this
7: it's it's hard to do that you know it's hard to um to play someone so dark um well he the way he has this kind of bravado and humor so tied into his character but it's um it's 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 admirable to be able to to hold all those you know balls up in the air
6: Okay, so you mentioned your bucket list earlier. I'm not going to let that slide. Like, who's on your bucket list for acting, like, out there?
7: Well, I would. it would be remiss of me to say that if my husband wasn't Michael Douglas, he would definitely be in my bucket list to work with as an actor, you know, and not because he's my husband, but because he's the actor, Michael Douglas, that Mm -hmm. um, we got the opportunity to work it within the same movie when Steven uh, Soderbergh directed us in Traffic, which is weird because we shared a trailer once. Because if if you remember Traffic, there's three different storylines going on at the same time, yeah. So my storyline never never mixed with his storyline. But if he wasn't my husband, I'd want to work with him. Personally, I find I always find it a bit weird when husband and wife are on screen together in some loved up way. It's kind of creepy. I don't know what it is. But if we were in a very combative kind of. Against each other, maybe a remake of War of the Roses where, you know, um, that would be fun, you know, to 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 work with him. So he would be definitely in my bucket list. Um, I'd love to work with, um, Helen Miram. Miram. Mm-hmm. I would like to work with her. Um, I'd love to work with Meryl Streep. I'm talking about women now because usually, um, one is always, it's, it's the it's the guy and the girl, you know, I, I, I haven't worked with enough of our great actresses because I'm usually the, the, the woman cast opposite the man, or mm-hmm. co-starring opposite, you know, Renee or something. And there's so many great actors, women, that I want to work with. And, and, and I want to be in stories that, you know, see a woman's dynamic together, you know. Historically, there's been Thérèse and Louise, you know, and there's been, you know, but there's not there's not a lot of, of you know, a lot of chances I get to work with a lot of of, of the great actresses. So that was right. And then on the men front, um, I'd love to work with Hugh Jackman. I, I say that because I feel like Hugh Jackman is, is from my world, you know. We have a theater musical mm-hmm. background. We have a straight acting background, you know. We were able to, in our territories, him being Australian, me being British, we were able to jump out of the kind of box that we were, we were put in of you saying, you dance, you act, you know, and we were able to come take a plane and come and, 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 you know, break it, break the mold. Um, And for me personally, you know, I always cherish my experience in, in Hollywood because when I was growing up, it was so far removed for me. All I wanted to do was go to London and be on a stage because that that was just like I, I that was doable. But to, to going all that way across the pond and then going all that way across country and ended on the west coast of the Mecca of, of Hollywood, I was too starstruck for it that to even conce- be conceivable for me. You know, and it takes a, it takes the person to have the balls to give it a shot. You know, win or lose, succeed or fail. And I feel like Hugh Jackman has a bit of the same DNA as me, and I'd love to see how we would work on screen together. So he's definitely, I one. and I know him personally, and he's just adorable. You know, he is a, Oh he my! Is I, I, this next chapter in my life is like all I want is to work with no a-holes I only want to work with nice people that's it I don't care how that's talented it. you are if you're not nice I don't want to be around you <laughs>
6: that's it you put you've put that out there and somebody needs to write a script with you Helen Mirren and Meryl Stroop
7: yeah that would be just film. that would be like a dream come true
2: That's Catherine Zeta-Jones, star of Fox's Prodigal Son, which airs its season and now series finale on May 18 at 9 p.m. And that's it for this edition of Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. Drew Griffith edited this episode and Michael Schneider is the producer. Be sure to subscribe to the Award Circuit Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download podcasts. Also head on over to variety.com and click on the awards circuit tab to find the latest Emmy predictions and key races, as well as your daily fix of news, analysis, and reviews. For Daniel Terciano and Jazz Tanke, I'm Michael Schneider, and we'll see you on the circuit.